Nostalgia for the days of dictatorship. Filipinos go to the polls as journalists prepare for life post-Duterte. Judgment Day is coming for America's abortion law. A sneak preview of the decision gets leaked to the press. And China versus Taiwan, a geopolitical mismatch that satirists are making the most of. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and examine how news is reported. On Monday, the Philippines will elect a new president. For the past six years, the country of 110 million has been led by Rodrigo Duterte, an authoritarian who has incited violence against journalists who dared to criticize his policies, such as his so-called war on drugs and the thousands of Filipinos killed as a result. Duterte is not running. The Constitution limits presidents to one term in office. But Monday's vote is partly a referendum on his legacy. It is also an appraisal of his idol, Ferdinand Marcos, the dictator who ruled the archipelago for two decades until the mid-1980s. Because the front-runner is Ferdinand Marcos Jr. And Duterte's daughter is running for vice president. Thanks to a social media strategy that majors in disinformation, Marcos Jr. is ahead in the polls, leading many Filipinos to fear what might be in store for their freedoms, starting with what remains of freedom of the press. Our starting point this week is the capital, Manila. For anyone on the outside looking in, tracking the presidential election in the Philippines, the question has to be, how has it come to this? How has Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of a dictator who imposed martial law on Filipinos back in the 1970s, come to lead the pre-election polls? How have the Marcoses, a family judged to have stolen between five and $10 billion from the central bank, a regime considered to be one of the worst kleptocracies in world history, made a political comeback? How has Marcos Jr., known by his nickname, Bong Bong, come to be the betting favorite to succeed Rodrigo Duterte in the president's office in Manila? The impending rise of Bongbong Bong Marcos to the presidency is clearly a result of his alliance with President Duterte because um, President Duterte has the machinery on social media and also their disinformation networks. Pre Duterte, there was already social media, but it wasn't as toxic as it is now. People just believing what they want to believe. The polls are a reflection of the effective disinformation campaign that they had launched uh, six years ago and continue to activate till this day. Efforts of this current administration to undermine the credibility of mainstream media to spread distrust has taken its toll and we find a population more willing to believe in blogs, in social media posts, in YouTube channels, rather than uh, what legacy media reports. What we saw online were positive messages um, that were rehabilitating the Marcos brand. And what does it stand for? Strongman leadership. It stands for Marcos Sr., right? Mas maunlat pa sana ang ating bansa kung hindi dahil pinaalis 
Si Presidente Marcos nakagagawa ng putang inag-edsa-edsa na yan. Marcos Sr. supposedly ushered in the golden age of the Philippines when he was ruling as a dictator. And at the same time, negative campaigns discrediting the legacy of the peaceful revolution of 1986 that overturned the Marcos martial law um, era. And how was this rebranding, this rehabilitation of the Marcos brand? How did it happen? It happened on social media. In a world plagued by an online pandemic of disinformation, analysts who study the spread of fake news call the Philippines Patient Zero. Its citizens are among the world's heaviest users of social media, spending more than four hours a day scrolling, reading, or posting. It is the primary source of news for more than 70% of the population, and the platforms of choice can be littered with disinformation. Facebook is popular with older Filipinos, while TikTok, YouTube, and the messaging app Viber our go-to sources for those under the age of 40 who make up half of the electorate. One survey indicates that a clear majority of voters 24 or younger, those too young to have lived under his father, support Marcos Jr. And that is the demographic most likely to be influenced by what it sees on social media, including attacks on Marcos's liberal opponent, Lenny Robredo. There's a lot of misinformation being peddled by pro-Marcos, pro-Duterte accounts attacking Lenny Robredo. Some of these are blatant disinfo, some are more in, in the vein of attack messaging, portraying Robredo as a weak leader, and even very dark conspiracies that Robredo is the puppet of the U.S. government. Right, So these are conspiracy theory narratives expressed on, um, in the form of memes, in the form of parody, in the form of jokes, um, and they circulate online and get a lot of views. There's a study that more than half of Filipinos rely on social media for their information. And even Wikipedia has been contaminated with all of the Marcos myths that the Marcos days were glory days. Fact-checking independent organizations have tried to um, correct all of these myths and fake news, but every time these sites are deleted, they come back um, as soon as they are deleted. More importantly, the largest uh, media organization, ABS-CBN, has been shut down. So this has affected the way that people uh, appreciate information. ABS-CBN occupied a dominant place in the Filipino media landscape until it made an enemy of Rodrigo Duterte. In 2020, after the president repeatedly complained about the network's news coverage, the Congress refused to renew its broadcast license, effectively canceling its free-to-air channel. The government has also used lawfare, filing dubious legal charges against the news site Rappler and its editor, Maria Ressa, whose reporting and refusal to be silenced won her a Nobel Peace Prize. The authorities have been going after Rappler ever since it exposed Duterte's war on drugs for what it really is, a license to kill extrajudicially. Ito ang mga buto ng mga pinatay sa giyera kontra droga ni Pangulong Rodrigo Duterte. For Rodrigo Duterte, silencing journalists and their news organizations is no big deal. He's advocated publicly for far worse. Just because you're a journalist, you're not exempted from assassination. 
Marcos Jr. supported Duterte, whose daughter is running to be his vice president. And should Marcos win the election, things look no better for ABS-CBN, Rappler, or journalism in the Philippines. Bongbong Marcos Jr. has no intent of ever returning the franchise or the frequencies of ABS-CBN, and he has made pronouncements to this effect that he will follow the policy of the Duterte administration. It is quite evident that he will continue with this policy and harass independent news media organizations by filing cases against them and by not renewing their franchises. So it is quite evident that Bongbong Marcos Jr. will continue harassing journalists, will continue the policy of harassing journalists. Bongbong Marcos has not formally said anything against media, but you might say that action speaks, speaks louder than words because he has continuously evaded all the debates that have been sponsored by mainstream media, the, these presidential debates. He has refused interview with a very credible and respected journalist, Jessica Soho of GMA7, a network that has always been considered neutral. He has also refused all sorts of other uh, requests for interviews from all the networks except for SMNI, which is a network that is owned by a crony of President Duterte. Ferdinand Bongbo, Marcos Jr. President Duterte's actions against the media have not impacted his popularity. In fact, his supporters like it. So it's a testament that it is working. So Bongbong Marcos could follow that. And we are actually seeing that um, he's doing that. So we are expecting, as journalists, we are expecting the worst. We are preparing for the worst. In the 1970s, when Ferdinand Marcos Sr. imposed martial law on the Philippines, he shut down the majority of news outlets. Marcos Jr. makes no apologies for that. In fact, his campaign is using modern-day digital tools of disinformation to rewrite the history of that analog era. Rodrigo Duterte has already turned back the clock on press freedom and authoritarianism in the Philippines. And if the polls are to be believed, there's more in the form of Marcos Mark II to come. Turning to the U.S. now, where the leak of a draft opinion from the Supreme Court has revealed that a woman's right to have an abortion is now in jeopardy. Starting with the leak and what we know about it. Here's Flo Phillips. On May 2nd, reporters for the news website Politico, Josh Gerstein and Alexander Ward, published a leaked copy of the, quote, draft majority opinion, which lays out the positions on abortion of each of the nine justices on the U.S. Supreme Court. The draft document rejects a 1973 ruling, known as the Roe v. Wade case, which guarantees the right to abortion under federal law. And it could mean that each of the 50 states would be able to restrict or ban abortion. That a full Supreme Court draft was leaked to journalists is unprecedented, and it has lit up the public and the press. Polling data shows that 80% of Americans support the right to abortion, but there have been demonstrations on both sides of the issue and mainstream media outlets have been reverting to type. Outlets like Fox News are coming at the story from the conservative side. It's a great day for the pro-life movement across this country. Those who Channels like MSNBC are on the other side of this debate. 
This means that the government's going to force women to give birth now. Then there's late night talk show host Stephen Colbert, a comedian who dug up video of the conservative justices at their confirmation hearings, telling members of Congress one thing about Roe versus Wade, what they knew they wanted to hear. Roe versus Wade is uh, an important precedent of the Supreme Court. Roe versus Wade clearly held that the Constitution protected a woman's right to terminate a pregnancy. That's the law of the land. I accept the law of the land. It's settled as a precedent of the Supreme Court. They knew that if they were honest, they wouldn't get the job, so they lied. The court's judgment will not be made official for another couple of months. But because the leak came out when it did, this abortion issue will be front and centre in US politics until that day comes and beyond. Thanks, Flo. Taiwan's political situation is unique. Beijing maintains that the island is Chinese, threatening to take it by force were it to declare independence. Conversely, Taiwan's constitution still lays claim to the entire Chinese mainland, territory that its leaders lost control of more than half a century ago, all of which has proven difficult for politicians to navigate and for journalists to cover. But for some Taiwanese, comedians, this conflict provides comedy gold, a rich stream of material to ridicule China, its Communist Party, and the relationship between Beijing and Taipei. The political satirists are popular with Taiwanese audiences. The YouTube videos of comedy groups like ICTV can generate millions of views. And satire has proven to be a useful tool to educate audiences about a geopolitical stalemate that many people, including Taiwanese citizens, lost interest in and checked out of a long time ago. The Listening Post's Johanna Hoos now on the Taiwanese political satirists making jokes at China's and sometimes Taiwan's expense. From the monotone delivery to the outfits and the flags on stage, it's exactly like watching a press conference from China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Except this one is produced in Taiwan by comedians for a satirical show on YouTube called ICTV. When we established the channel, we wanted to use a less serious way to explore politics. We imitate CCTV, China's state TV channel, and how they report the news. Our most popular segment is the press conferences held by China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I play the part of a Chinese official. The questions are very satirical, for example, about China's internet restrictions or how they manage the pandemic. Irony not only makes people realize that certain things China says are nonsense, it also makes them examine and question it. ICTV reflects Taiwanese people's dissatisfaction with China's involvement in Taiwan over the past few years. Their style is mockumentary news. They pretend to be an official state media news broadcast. But in addition to comedy, ICTV actually provides a lot of news. Many young Taiwanese don't know much about China's politics, even though it significantly impacts Taiwan. So the show conveys at least some kind of information about the current political climate to young audiences. 
ICTV does not just take aim at Chinese officials or China's Communist Party. Some of its satire targets politicians and politics closer to home. In particular, Taiwan's opposition party, the Kuomintang, or KMT, and the bizarreness of the country's political status quo. In the country's constitution, which was written more than 75 years ago, Taiwan is still called the Republic of China, which lays claim to all Chinese territory, including the mainland. It's a legacy of the pre-1949 era, when the KMT ruled China, before the civil war saw them defeated by the Communist Party and forced into exile in Taiwan. For decades, the KMT and the Communist Party both claimed control over each other's territory and argued that theirs was the only legitimate China. It's a strange reality, one that Beijing still asserts and remains reflected in Taiwan's constitution, and it's at the heart of ICTV's comedy. We pretend to be the state media in Taiwan, which aims to brainwash everyone into believing Taiwan's Republic of China is the only real China. We ridicule the political status quo. Most young Taiwanese find the situation bizarre and funny. But there are older people from different generations who feel sad about it and have other views on the Republic of China. I would say that before ICTV became really popular, a lot of the young people didn't know that in our constitution we still tried to claim back the territory. It wasn't aware because people just don't talk about it. And now because the power of comedy, people know it. It's like, come on, KMT, you probably need to fix your constitution or we need to face our history together. Taiwan's situation is just very surreal. While our constitution claims that our territory covers the whole of China, everyone knows that Taiwan is being bullied by Beijing and could never govern mainland China. The same goes for the other side. The Communist Party has always claimed that Taiwan is a part of the People's Republic of China which is equally ridiculous. It's all so stupid, but also very sad. ICTV are very effective at using sharp black humor to address these territorial matters. It's a funny and satirical way of addressing the truth. ICTV's YouTube page has more than a million subscribers. And they are not the only comedians ratcheting up views. Political satire, with its irreverent take on Taiwan's identity and constitution, has struck a chord with young audiences. Take Brian Tseng, who launched Taiwan's first satirical talk show in 2018. He used much of his airtime to joke about his favorite topic, China. Then there are the new kids on the block podcast hosts like Kylie Wang, 
who uses her show to reach Chinese-speaking audiences in Taiwan and beyond. We try to reach uh, all the Mandarin-speaking people around the world, like Singapore, Malaysia, not to mention like Hong Kong and China. Our podcast show has a lot of Chinese listeners who secretly support what we say, but they can't really say it. The reason why we know is because some of them send us emails anonymously and tell us how lonely they are because they can't really share what they really think in their own country. Unlike China, Taiwan has one of the freest media scenes in Asia. It's been that way since the 1990s, after the country emerged from decades of Kuomintang dictatorship. But the information space is very polarized, and a significant share of news outlets are indirectly controlled by Beijing. With an economy that greatly depends on China, Taiwanese media organizations that criticize the Communist Party can face commercial pressures. Platforms like YouTube and Spotify offer comedians a space to say and produce what they want without having to take any of that into account. YouTube as a platform is very important to us. Using YouTube and to a lesser degree Facebook means that we can criticize China without facing threats or commercial pressures. That's not to say that mainstream news outlets in Taiwan don't take a stance. Some of them do address China's propaganda and politics. There is pushback. Our selling point is that we turn China's propaganda into a joke, to blunt the power of propaganda. Much of the mainstream media that was resisting China's communist government has either been bought or disappeared. If you want to establish a political satire program like ICTV on a TV station, you face funding and personnel issues. So these shows rely on YouTube. But they still need to be careful because China is also infiltrating this space. It's just another tactic of theirs. Despite all the jokes, not all ICTV content is a laughing matter. With stories like Hong Kong's protests or the war in Ukraine, the show takes a less comedic, more journalistic approach, with correspondents even flying out to report the situation from the ground. For Chen Se Chen, it's about the balance between satire and solemnity. We have one principle when we make the show. If we're going to talk about a sensitive story, or one that involves a lot of casualties, we're going to approach it in a serious, more cautious way. For example, the war in Ukraine, where we have sent a reporter to cover it. I don't think our channel will become an official, serious news channel. After all, our audiences watch us for fun and for satire. But we might at some point develop another channel that has a different mission. What's really interesting is that when Taiwanese comedians try to do comedy or political satire, people would tend to think that, okay, you guys are anti-China, but we are not. A lot of people, they just haven't understood that yet. So we are trying our best to reach more people, to make them understand what we are doing, and we are just protecting our society and our country. And I'm sure that this is something that they will appreciate as well. And finally, the climate change headlines keep coming. Of new temperature highs here, biodiversity lows there, and the UN releasing a report calling global climate inaction a horror story. With much of the mainstream news media still failing to give this existential story the coverage it deserves, 
Here are a few recommendations for climate updates that present the science, possible courses of action in ways that are news consumer friendly. Raleigh Williams is an American climate scientist and educator. It might be time for us to break up with our gas stoves. Williams runs Climate Town, a YouTube channel that says it examines climate change in a way that doesn't make you want to take a cyanide pill. There are a bunch of climate-focused outlets that cover different aspects of this story. Desmog attempts to clear up what it calls the PR pollution that is clouding the science and solutions to climate change. Reporter Brasil sends journalists across that country to make the connections between environmental violations and major national and international brands. And then there's China Dialogue. It's headquartered in London, but staffed with Chinese specialists who work inside and outside China, covering the environmental challenges and initiatives there. One podcast we've subscribed to is How to Save a Planet. You can find it on Spotify. And if there's one thing people hunger for when faced with a big, complicated problem, it's a big, simple solution. Much of the reporting is American, but the themes are quite universal, and the way they tell their stories is really interesting. Finally, if you prefer a daily dose of climate news in your inbox, we recommend Climate Beat, produced by a collective of media companies called Covering Climate Now. They curate the week's best climate reporting and provide tips, insights for journalists on how to report on the climate emergency. We've taken note of some of those tips for our own reporting, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.